I'd like to read with you a few verses, please, from Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. These are the words of the Apostle Paul when he was speaking to the elders of Ephesus who met him at Miletus on his way by. And he essentially uh, describes for us in these words the whole tenor of his ministry. He, he encapsulates, he gathers together all of the, the far-reaching uh, ministry that he had had and he puts it down in a very concise form so that we can understand what it takes to be involved in this great project. And we'll break into the um, description here in verse 19. And as we read through it, you'll notice a whole series of couplets. Serving the Lord with all humility of mind and with many tears and temptations which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews. And how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. And then a little further down, Verse 24, none of these things move me. He's speaking about facing uh, the troubles ahead in Jerusalem and eventually in Rome. None of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify of the grace, the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that you all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God shall see my face no more. Wherefore, I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all. For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock, and of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn every one night and day with tears. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. I've coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands have ministered to my necessities and to them that were with me. I've showed you all things, how that so laboring you ought to support the weak and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. And then he kneels down and prays with them, and uh, they accompany him to the ship and away he goes to fulfill his last great mission as we read through the book of acts we see a very clear set of steps and you'll see this in your chart i think quite clearly a series of uh, steps away from judaism and an engaging of the pagan world and one of the things that i think 
this next generation has to acknowledge that we are today faced with a new world view, uh, sometimes called postmodernism, a view that denies absolute truth, that rejects history as a valid witness, uh, that um, denies um, absolute standards of morality, and that largely has abandoned the whole notion of one true God and his revelation in the Bible. Now, this, on the one hand, seems like a huge challenge to us, but on the other hand, it has certain advantages. Uh, we're not dealing with too many religious hypocrites these days. <laughs> it's hard to find a Pharisee anymore. The majority of people that we meet are fresh territory. Uh, we, we are meeting people today who don't have any uh, uh, false notions about the Bible. They don't have any notions about the Bible at all. It's my privilege pretty much every month somewhere to be speaking to a group of high school students. I get into public schools all over the country and um, in Canada and uh, overseas. Um, two weeks from now, Lord willing, a week and a half from now, I'll be speaking to uh, a group of high school students in Ireland, in, in Northern Ireland, in Enniskillen. Uh, they've asked me to come and speak. I was there a year or so ago. Uh, in December, I've been invited down to uh, southern North Carolina to a big public high school there. Uh, I was there the, the week after September 11, after the, after the uh, tragedy in New York, and one of the, da the daughters of one of the Christians in the assembly uh, came to me after Sunday meeting and said, um, everybody's asking questions and no one has answers. If I can get you into my English class, will you come? I said, sure. So uh, she got me into the English class, and I had 45 minutes with the students, and they gave me a standing ovation and said, come back after lunch to answer our questions. And I said, well, if the teacher can arrange it. She said, I can arrange it. And so she did, and after during that second 45-minute period, two other teachers came to stand at the door and listen, and one of them, who's not a Christian, said, can you come back tomorrow? And I said, sure. He said, more students need to hear this. And so their gym had burned down, but they uh, cleared all the furniture out of the library, and they jammed 200 students in there, and they gave me 45 minutes to give a presentation, and then after lunch, another 45 minutes to answer questions. And then I was leaving, and uh, I heard a teacher running after me. She said, you can't leave yet. There are another 200 students couldn't get in, and they want their turn. So I was there all day speaking to the class. <laughs> but in, in, in all of these contacts with um, uh, high school students, I've come to the conclusion that these young people, by and large, are not rebels against the gospel. They've never heard it. The majority of them have never heard it. In fact, many of them have never had a Bible in their hands. The first generation that's grown up without Sunday school, without any Christian education in the schools, many of them have never touched a Bible. They don't know a thing about it. And so this is a virgin territory for us. You know, they're wide open. I was telling the folks out at the camp that when I was in Scotland, I was speaking to an evangelist there named John Grant, and he told me that he was having gospel meetings in a town near Glasgow, and uh, everyone was unemployed in the community, so they could have meetings any time of the day. And they had kids' meetings in the morning, and then they had adult meetings leading up to tea time, and then they'd serve them a cup of tea and a cookie. That's a way to get a Scotsman out, you know, to give them a cup of tea, and uh, especially if it's free. And so... Um, <laughs> Uh, they, a man came to pick up his daughter from the, the children's meeting, and John said to him, why don't you come out for the adult meeting at 3 o'clock? Well, he said, I, I don't believe the Bible. 
And John said, well, this is ideal because this meeting is specifically for people who don't believe the Bible. Uh, we don't want the people who do believe it. We're looking for people who don't believe it. And so the man thought, well, if that was the case, he'd come. And so he, he came to the meeting. Well, John was speaking about original sin and Adam in the garden. And the man became belligerent, started to shout in the meeting, and finally got up and stormed out. So John's son Stephen got up and ran out after him, and in a few minutes the man came back in and sat down and was quite civil. And So after the meeting, John said to Stephen, how did you handle that? And Stephen said, well, the man's name is Adam. And he said, that man invited me here to blame the whole thing on me. <laughs> And he said, I don't even have a garden. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, it's funny, but wow. We, that's the kind of people we're dealing with today. People who have absolutely no biblical framework. And so that means that we who want to share the gospel with people don't have to explain away a lot of misunderstandings that people have. But we do need to speak in plain English. It's one thing to say, uh, are you in the shadow of the great rock or are you washed in the blood? Those are good biblical ideas, but it will mean absolutely nothing to someone who doesn't have a biblical framework. So in John chapter 3, when Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, he uses the illustration of the serpent on the pole. He says, Nicodemus, you're a teacher in Israel. You know these things. But when he speaks to the woman at the well, he never quotes a Bible verse. He uses the water from the well as an illustration of her thirst and his ability to satisfy that thirst. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't quote Bible verses. I am saying, however, that we need to define all of our terms and we need to explain things in a way that people understand. And sometimes we would do well to do a little role playing ourselves and sit down with one another and say, here's how I would explain the gospel. Does this make sense? If you were an, a total unbeliever, you'd never heard the gospel. Does this make sense to you? I mean, I, I was at a Lord's Supper at, at camp um, this summer, and uh, the brother got up. He thought he was being helpful, but he said to the audience, if you don't normally uh, remember the Lord in your local assembly, please just pass the elements by. Elements like hydrogen, helium, oxygen, beryllium, boron, carbon. Well, what are we talking about here? The elements. I mean, it's a little phrase we use. I don't know where we came from. But we use these terms, and we assume that we're making ourselves clear, but we're not. So you see how Paul preached uh, in Jerusalem, and see how he preached in Athens or Corinth. It was very different. Now, the essential message of the Bible is the same. You have a need. Christ is the answer. And how that's communicated to people has to be communicated in a way that they understand. Don't start where you are. Start where they are and bring them to where you are. I'm also to be having a, a, a one-day meeting gospel effort in Newry in two weeks. I'd appreciate a prayer. I have several of these opportunities um, uh, over there. One of them is uh, a business lunch where they invite businessmen out. There are eight men in Enniskillen who get together every week to pray for their city. 
They're very serious about it. They have lists on the wall of all of the policemen, all of the firemen, all of the school teachers, uh, the mayor and his council, and they pray for that city. And they have a, a telephone line. You can call in. Anybody in the city, call in prayer requests, and they pray specifically all the way through these things. And so once a year, they have a business lunch. In the last four years, I've gone over and spoken, and they bring in people that they think would never go to a gospel meeting. And they put on this beautiful lunch, a carvery, as they call it, you know, a beautiful buffet at a fancy hotel, and they invite in, as they told me, half the wealth in County Fermanagh is in this room today. All the politicians, the members of parliament, they're all there. And they give me about 40 minutes to preach the gospel to them in a way that's going to nudge them in the right direction without scaring them off, you see. It's quite a challenge. Anyway, I'm also to be down at a hotel in Newry, which is right on the border, and they've been working in this Catholic area, and when you do that, you have your meetings about 20 miles away. Because if you have it in the community, nobody will come out. They might be seen going in there, you see. So they have it at a hotel, because you can go into a hotel, nobody knows where you're going, which room you're going to. And um, no singing. We like to sing, but the unbeliever doesn't even know the words. just makes them feel very much out of it. Paul probably didn't give out a hymn at Mars Hill. Jesus probably didn't give out a hymn on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And so it's just announced as a Bible lecture, not gospel meetings. What does that mean to an unbeliever? Maybe it did mean something at one time, but not anymore. A Bible lecture um, and uh, very plain and obvious titles to the messages. Nothing cryptic, nothing cutesy, just things like, um, what you need to go to heaven, what you need to do to go to heaven, or um, you can be sure of heaven, or the five things that everyone wants in life, things like that, just plain, obvious statements. Uh, can you trust the Bible? Did Jesus prove his claims? That's, that sort of thing. And you invite people to come and hear the message, um, and it's a, a, a presentation that is made so that you're thinking about people starting right at the beginning. And you go right to the beginning. You start off, is there a God? And if there's a God, what kind of a God is he? And if he's a good God, why is it such a crummy world? And you, and you have to build from scratch. And when I'm preaching, I can see the crowd. I can see some people jump off the train just while we're traveling along. You know, the train of thought is going too fast for them. And I say, for example, that we're all sinners. The Bible says we're all sinners. I see people jump off the train. I'm not going with you there. I don't, I don't believe that. And so I have to stop the train. And I just noticed some people jumped off here. You, you're not prepared to go that far with me. All right, I'm going to back up the train, and I'm going to see if I can convince you that you're a sinner. Now, I want you to cooperate with me because every benefit that God has to offer is only for sinners. So if you don't qualify as a sinner, you don't get in on any of it. Jesus didn't come to save sinner, uh, to good people. He came to save sinners. And the, all the good things that God has are only for, for sinners. So if you can find it in your heart to, to agree with God about this, this is good for you. This, this is the best thing that will ever happen. So let's see if we can convince you, see, and try to get them back on the train. And, you know, you see some of them get back on the train. Okay, we'll go a little farther with you. <laughs> you start down the road, and then you see, whoop, there they go again. And you have to back up and stop and say, I went too fast here, didn't I? You, you, you can't agree with that. All right, let's see if this makes sense to you. And the, and the Bible speaks about reasoning in the Scriptures. Reasoning in the Scriptures. 
I had a very interesting situation. I went to see my daughter's English teacher at the end of the last term. Uh, I, she thought she had a textbook that uh, she hadn't found, but it, it had been turned in. So anyway, I was just sitting there talking, and he said to me, I know I can say this to you, sir. We know the difference with students whose parents teach them about God. He said, you know, I failed in that. I never taught my children about God. Where would I start? <laughs> Where would I start? Well, for two and a half hours, we went through the, the message of the Bible. And it was so amazing to me. Like, I'm, I tend to be, I'm not really an evangelist, and I back off. I, I'm not good at pulling in the net, you know. I'm always sort of backing off on people. And so I said to him, well, here, listen to this verse. Come now, let's reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be a scarlet, and I, I quote the rest of the verse, you see. And I'm emphasizing this bit about let your, let's reason together. This makes sense. You can think about this. God's not trying to shove anything down your throat. He said, oh, that's good, that's good. Let me get that down. Though your sins be a scarlet, what's the rest of that now? I've got to tell my kids that. That's good. That's good. Like he completely missed this bit about reasoning together, you know. Like he was cutting to the chase. This is it, right? This is the message, right? Yeah, that's the message. You're right. <laughs> that's the message. The devil has convinced us that nobody's interested. Nobody wants to hear this message. I don't think that's true. I find that there are many people who have never clear... They have been betrayed by religion. They've gone to religious services. They've listened to these ministers get up wishy-washy, up and down, back and forth, talking politics, gardening, butterflies, you name it. Never give them the truth. And people want... They may not necessarily agree the first time they hear it, but they appreciate it when you give it to them straight. The first thing I do when, when people come out to a, an effort like that... I commend them on their courage. I say, listen, this is not easy. I know that. And there are a lot of people who are invited here who did not come. And you came because you care about your soul. You care about the spiritual dimension of your life. And I commend you on that. And, and when you go to see a doctor, you say to him, give it to me straight. It's my health. It's my body. I want to know. Tell me straight. And I think you appreciate that. So you know what? I'm going to tell you straight. And if there's something you are offended by or something you disagree with, you, by all means, come and tell me. But I want to do this because, as Paul says here, I am pure from the blood of all men. They say sometimes we use so much tact we never make contact. <laughs> round and round we go. Spit it out. Just tell it to them. Do it in love. Do it in kindness. Tell them of the grace of God. Tell them of the love of God. But Christian, there is nothing like the gospel. There's nothing like it in all the world. And so we need to listen to how people preach the gospel. We need to ask people who are good thinkers in the scripture. You go and ask someone, how do you talk to an agnostic? Okay, an atheist, maybe I know how to answer an atheist. But when a man says, well, I don't know, I'm not sure that you can know. How, how you know, I, I don't think anybody really can know. How do you answer someone like that? I asked David Gooding that question. He said, well, whatever they are, they're not agnostics. Agnostic means ignorant, you know, and they really do know a lot. They know more than Jesus did because Jesus said you can know. And so if they say you can't know, 
they're coming up against Jesus. So I suppose we need to ask them for their credentials. Now, Jesus, he raised dead people and things like that. So he has a fair bit of credibility, you know. So then the question is, should we take the words of Jesus or should we take your word for it? Do you know for sure? See, the Bible says that if you don't know, you can know if you search for God with all your heart. And the reason this man doesn't know God is because he, he's been half-hearted in his search. If he was wholehearted, he would have found the Lord, wouldn't he? So we need, to, we need to help one another. When somebody gets up to preach the gospel at the end of the time, say, Brother, I really like this statement. I really like that. That was good. Now, you said this. Do you really think that an unbeliever understood what you said? Maybe, maybe there'd be some other way to say it. How would you say that to someone who'd never heard the gospel before? What, what does that really mean in English? You know? So we have a huge challenge ahead of us. We are not dealing with religious hypocrites so much. We're not dealing with Pharisees anymore. We are dealing with raw pagans. Now, happily, while the first chap, uh, section of Acts shows how Christianity disengaged from Judaism, how they rallied around the name, the Messiah, Jesus as the Messiah, and how they, they had to make a, an issue. They, they finally came to a determination about the role of the law in the life of these Gentile believers. And there were various stages at which they withdrew from Judaism. The second half of the book now shows them engaging with the pagan world. And you know, all of these philosophies that we're hearing today, there's nothing new under the sun. They have all been answered in the word of God. And so the arguments that were proclaimed in these books, in these chapters, and also in the book of Romans and in John's, God, John's epistles, you'll find that the, the issues that we face today are the issues that they already answered 2,000 years ago. So he says, you notice the first little link together. He says, um, verse 20, we showed you... <coughs> And taught you. That's how, that's how the book of Acts begins, doesn't it? Of all the things that Jesus began to do and to teach. We showed you and taught you. Publicly and from house to house. Now, the broadcasting of the gospel is not the most effective way to do it. For example, you go around your neighborhood, you knock on all the doors. How many actual responses do you get? Do you get... One, two, three, four, I don't know. Uh, some get a few more than others, but, but not all that many. But it has to be done for those one, two, three, or four that are there that you probably wouldn't reach any other way. So there's broadcasting of the Word of God. There's, there's the public declaration of it. We want to find the most effective ways to do it. Obviously, a fuller brush salesman, when he comes to your door, doesn't just bring one brush. Do you like this brush? No? Oh, okay. Well, I'll try with a different one next month. Uh, he brings a line of products, doesn't he? And so when we go to the door, we ought to be thinking, are there kids here for our Sunday school or a kids club? Uh, is there a Christian here uh, who's searching, uh, maybe struggling, we can help? Um, uh, is there someone I can share the gospel with at the door or I can leave some literature? Um, is, and one of the most effective things is to say, listen, we every week, maybe you don't believe in prayer, but we do. And every week we pray for people in our community. We'd like to pray for you. Is there anything you would like prayed for? 
It's amazing how people will open their hearts to you. It's like people who carry a good luck charm. They don't believe in luck, of course. But, you know, it's not going to hurt. <laughs> and so they may not believe in prayer, but they say, well, it couldn't hurt, could it, uh, to have these people praying for my grandson who's in the hospital. Or, and, and when they do that, they open their hearts to you. So if we go to the door with a line of products, so to speak, we go with a, a number of options. As I was mentioning with John Bramhall, he had various avenues open. He didn't just go and try to do one thing. You go and try and invite people out to your meeting and you leave them a, an invitation. Yeah, maybe they will, but you get very little response these days from doing that, I think. But if you go to the door and offer people a home Bible study, how would you like to be involved in a home Bible study? You might get more, more interest. We have a, um, a review of a new uh, series of evangelistic home Bible material uh, on the inside of the last, uh, this September Uplook magazine. It's called Christianity Explored, used by uh, the Markham Assembly in Toronto. They've seen six or seven Catholic women saved through it in the last six months. And uh, it's, uh, we've seen it. You can go on the website and see their material. It's actually very excellent, called ChristianityExplored.com. You can uh, look it up and see it's, it's quite, a, quite an effective tool to use in reaching people with the gospel. So publicly and from house to house, we will never be able to fulfill the Great Commission one-on-one. -on -one. We're going to have to do some broadcasting. In other words, the difference between line fishing, where you're going after that particular fish, and just getting the dragnet out and seeing what you can bring in. And I think we need both of these. We, we need some public broadcasting of the truth, but we also need a personal um, contact, and, and we can't do one without the other. And so Paul says we use both, both methods, publicly and from house to house. And then he says in verse 21, testifying both to the Jew and also to the Greeks. And this is what we've already mentioned, that, uh, that there are some very diverse audiences and we have to understand where people are. I sat down with a Catholic fellow and said to him, do you believe in God? He said, yes. I said, well, what God is it? What do you, what do you think of when you think of God? Now, he professed to be a, a Roman Catholic, and yet he said, well, when you pick up a stone, that's God. Stick, that's God. He was a thoroughgoing pantheist, but confessed to be a Roman Catholic. So then what do you say? Well, I said to him, uh, obviously you don't think that justice in the world is a big issue, right? You, you don't believe in justice. There is no justice. If God, I'm God, Adolf Hitler's God, the stick is God, if everything's God, then nothing's God. There's no, there's no justice in the world. They can't take sin seriously if they, if they take that position. So we, we face a day when we're sitting down with people. We can't jump too quickly. Do you believe in heaven? I mean, heaven to them could be... Uh, you know, taking a ride on some drug. We have no idea what they mean anymore when they say they believe in God or heaven or salvation or whatever. Um, we have to define our terms. We have to go slowly and, and ask these people. And, you know, it's a good thing to sit down with a Muslim or a Hindu and say, tell me what you believe. And let them talk. Let them tell you what they believe. And when they're done, say, well, uh, do you know that for sure? I mean, are you sure of that? Are you tr is, is that? Is that certain with you? And a lot of times they'll say it is, but in their heart they know. <laughs> it's, they're not sure. They're not sure at all. And so say, well, I really appreciate this, and, and I know that, you know, being a perfect gentleman, you, you'll let me now explain to you what I believe, right? 
I mean, how can they disagree with that? If you let them talk, let them explain their position, and then you say, well, let me tell you what happened to me. The most wonderful thing ever happened in my life. I want to tell you what happened to me. It's going to be a, um, a situation where we're not uh, going to be allowed to make any negative comments about any other religion, right? It's already happening. The Southern Baptists have been banned from evangelism in France uh, because they dared say that uh, Jews need to get saved. Um, as soon as you say something like that, that Judaism is not a religion in itself, it's not going to look after you, that Christ is the only answer, I, I see the day coming when we're going to be persecuted for that. Um, well, and it wouldn't be a bad thing if a few of us got thrown in jail. What do you think? I think it'd be kind of good. It'd, it'd stir up our prayer meetings, wouldn't it? Yeah, I think so. So it wouldn't be a bad thing. But uh, I think we have to be prepared for that. And, and I think one of the most inoffensive ways is to say to someone, I, I try to do this with the Jehovah's Witness and Mormons that come to our door, say, listen, I'll give you two minutes and you tell me the very best news you've got. And then I'll tell you what I've got. And we'll see who's got the best thing. Well, they don't like that arrangement. See, their, their whole movement is based on putting down the gospel, putting down Christianity. And I'm not giving them an opportunity to do that. I'm just saying, you give me your best shot. What, what's the best thing you can tell me? And then when they're done, I say, good. Well, that's, that's what you got, eh? Well, l let me tell you what I got. It is way better <laughs> than what you have. And I want to tell you what I've got. And the great thing is you came to my door to give me what you had. But instead, why don't you take home what I've got? I, because i got something a lot better than you do. Uh, so I think it's fair to let people talk and say, because I want to learn. I want to understand why they think the way they do and what it is behind their religion. And let them talk. And then when they're done, say, listen, I want to tell you what I've got. And I love the line of um, a brother uh, who, uh, when he began to talk about the Lord, they began to talk about their religion. And he said, if you don't mind, um, I'd rather not talk about religion because I might say something that would offend you. So uh, why don't we just talk about the Lord Jesus instead? Boy, that really lays it out, doesn't it? That w uh, religion and Christianity are, are entirely different because we're talking about the Lord Jesus. We're talking about a person. And whatever you do when you're sharing the gospel, make sure you get to the Lord Jesus. He's what we have to offer, right? We preach Christ and him crucified. Well, he goes on to say that the two elements of the gospel at the end of verse 21, the two ingredients of the gospel are repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some people will quote the first words of 1 Corinthians 15 and say, these are the essentials of the gospel. Christ died, buried, raised again the third day according to the scriptures. Yes, they are. They are the historical essentials of the gospel. But these are what we might call the theological essentials. These are the two essential parts to one act. Repentance and faith are really one act. They're the two sides of the same coin. You're turning from something and to something. Is that two actions or one? It's just one action, isn't it? You turn from your sin and you turn to Christ. You turned to God from idols. To serve the living and true God and to wait for its son from heaven. And so it's this conscious act of turning my back on my sin, rejecting it, repenting of it, 
and receiving Christ as the answer to the problem. So agreeing with God about the problem, my sin. Agreeing with God about the answer, God's Son. And I turn from my sin to God's Son, and that's the essential message of the gospel. And so whatever else is said, these two great issues must be faced. That an individual is disqualified from heaven because of their sin, but God loves the sinner and has found a way in the death of Christ to at the same time pay for the penalty of sin and also give the gift of eternal life to all who repent. And however that's said, however we communicate it, we need to make sure that those elements are in the message we preach. So Paul puts them in the simplest of terms here at the end of verse 21, the two ingredients. So we have <coughs> the, uh, the two ways he communicated the truth, showing you and teaching you. As he would say to the Thessalonians, you know what manner of men we were among you, and you know what manner of entering in we had among you. In other words, the reason for our success in the gospel was linked to the lifestyle of the preachers. The way the Christians lived was as much a presentation of the gospel as what the Christians said. I've mentioned before about this elder in the assembly in Jersey City who came to America as a Muslim missionary. He's an elder in the assembly there. He said, when I met the young people from this assembly on the college campus, I thought I could answer their arguments, but I couldn't answer their graciousness. That's what won him. And when you're speaking to the cults, you know, they probably won't even hear what you're saying. They're thinking about what they're going to say. But they will notice how you say it. And if you treat them belligerently, you're not going to win them. The Lord Jesus was so gracious with the Pharisees. They came to rob these people who were interested in hearing. They were trying to steal them away. And they came to embarrass the Lord Jesus. They came to, to frame him, to set him up. And what would he do? He'd say, fellas, you, you look a little ragged. Uh, can I tell you a story? Well, let's you know, just, just relax for a minute. <laughs> Let me tell you a story. And he tells a story about the, the sheep and the coin and then the sons. And he comes to the end of the story. And, and he says, just before you leave, gentlemen, I know you like the other part about the bad sheep. These are the bad sheep at the front of the crowd here. Yeah, and the, the, the lost coin. Yeah, I, You get the point, don't you? Uh, that the, These are prodigals. And they've wandered away. And they've wasted their substance in riotous living. Yeah, they do need to get saved, don't they? But just before you leave, can I tell you about the other brother? The other brother's in the field. He's working hard. He, he's trying to work his way into the father's heart. Gentlemen, you can't do it. You're already in his heart. He loves you. I have come as God's personal representative to plead with you to come into the father's house. You're the most welcome men in the countryside. There's a place for you at the table. And my father wants you there. You're going to have to come through the same door the prodigal comes through. But I want you to know that you will be more than welcome in the Father's house. When he speaks to Simon, Simon the Pharisee sitting at the table despising Jesus and saying he's no prophet. If he were a prophet, he'd know what kind of a woman this is that's touching him. And Jesus tells the story, and again, he says, we should not treat everybody like a prodigal. Sometimes in our gospel preaching, we give that impression that we think that these upstanding, hardworking people are a bunch of gutter snipes. They're not. They're like the other brother, working hard, but they're... They don't waste their substance in riotous living. Jesus didn't say they did. 
And in this story, he tells about uh, one sinner who's run up a huge debt and the other sinner who's run up a moderate debt. But they're both debts and they don't have anything with which to pay the debt. So they're both hopelessly in debt. And he says to Simon, even though Simon is thinking ill thoughts of Jesus, he says to Simon, don't you understand, Simon, there's enough in the bank to cover your debt too. I'm prepared to go to the cross and pay your debt just as much as I'm prepared to pay this woman's debt. Now that's grace, isn't it? To, to manifest that grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. They wondered at the gracious words that came from his lips. Why did they wonder at it? Because it's not the way they would have responded. It was the graciousness of the Lord Jesus that shook them up. Not his fiery preaching. Not his clever arguments. What made them wonder was the graciousness of the Lord Jesus. And I think if we would go out our hearts full of the truth, but that as it crossed our lips there was that sweetness. What does it say? Grace is poured into thy lips. To have that, the sweetness of grace... And it would, it would flavor the truth, wouldn't it, in such a way that people would find it a lot easier to swallow if we were being gracious. So that's our challenge today, isn't it? To, to not simply be gracious, but have the truth there too. Some people are very gracious. They just don't give the truth. Well, you need both, the, the grace and the truth. Well, then a little further down, he says in verse 24, here's what I want. I, I don't care about dying on Nero's chopping block. That's no big deal to me. The, the two things that I want, verse 24, I want to finish my course with joy and the ministry which I've received of the Lord. Like I wanted I, in my own personal life, I want to get across the finish line. But in the process, I want to finish the work he gave me to do. So, Christian, the question is, what has he given you to do? What's the work he's given you to do? Yes, people say, well, you know, if, if, you, if you blow it with your family, if you blow it in your personal life, who cares about your ministry? Well, God cares about my ministry. He cares about my life, too, and he wants them both. He thinks it's possible for my life and my ministry both to finish well. <laughs> he thinks it is. And, and so Paul says, this is my twofold longing. I, I want to finish my life well, and I want to finish my ministry that he's given to me. And at the end of his day, he was able to sign off and say, I finished the work. Right? I finished my course, and I finished the work that God gave me to do. Well, if we're going to do that, I think there's some things that are going to have to be cleaned out of our lives. I think we have to do some spring cleaning. You know, our lives just get so cluttered, don't they? Our, just like our cupboards. We're, we're consumers. And we just we go through life like a snowplow, gathering stuff, gathering obligations and responsibilities. And I think some of us need to take a good hard look at that. I think a lot of us are more than ready to be involved in this great mission. And I think that we see across assemblies in North America, we see the rising up of a whole generation of people who say, let's go. But they have a problem. They don't have much time to do anything. And so they're qualified on every point except this. That, uh, they don't have any time. Well, we all get 24 hours, as far as I know. Nobody can make time. We have to take time away from other things. 
So I think the first stage in the process is to spend time at the altar and say, Lord, here's, here's 10 hours a week. I've been doing this. I've been reading the paper. I don't need to read the paper. The, the world comes and goes whether I know what's happening or not. And really, I can spend five minutes catching the news here and there. I really don't have to read every, you know, line of the newspaper. And it's really such a waste of time. Uh, it's not what's happening in the world anyway. I'd be better reading missionary news and finding out what's really happening in the world because Dan rather doesn't know about that. He doesn't know how many people got saved today. <laughs> so... Um, I'm going to set this aside for you. If, if later on you want to convict my heart and show me that really as a good Christian I should be reading the paper, well, I'm open to that. But right now I'm going to set this aside. Or an hour sleep or whatever it is. And all of a sudden I discover an hour a day that I spend doing this or that, 365 hours a year. Well, that's, that's better than the college course, you know. So I've got all this time. I, I didn't realize I had all this time. I start picking up the fag ends. I start picking up the little bits and pieces, the time sitting in the car at the red light, uh, the, the time waiting for a phone call, and I start to use these times for the Lord, to, to scratch off a little note to a Christian or send an email to a missionary or to uh, memorize a Bible verse or, or to leave some gospel tracts around the place. And all of a sudden I start to discover God has given me enough time there is enough time to do the will of God. It may mean a, a job change for some of us. It may mean um, saying, Lord, I, I need to, to narrow down. I, I, I really shouldn't be spending 60 hours a week in my business. And so I want you to show me how to get something where I, I can meet my family's obligations but free up some time for the Lord. And then when I have that time, don't cram it with your ideas. Say, now, Lord, here's 10 hours on the altar. What do you want me to do with it? You show me. I want to get the most out of these 10 hours. These have cost me sacrifice to do this. Show me how to use those 10 hours in the most efficient and effective way so that they'll bring the greatest glory to God. And see what he does with it. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. And he delights in his way. And I say, well, Lord, here it is now. You order my life. You show me what to do with this time. And I want to use it. It's cost me to do this, to redeem, to buy back the time. I think that's the idea, isn't it? That the time is slipping away, and I'm paying the price to hey, say, wait a minute. I'm not going to let that go like that. I want to use it for better things. And so you actually pay a price to get some time back. Time that you can use for the glory of God. Say, now there. I was mentioning at lunchtime, my fa father-in-law ran five businesses but a day didn't go by that he didn't visit one of the Christians. And he found all sorts of ways to do it. He'd, he'd talk to a fellow who worked down at the factory at General Motors, and he'd say, listen, I, I want to have lunch with you. And he'd say, well, I'll just get 30 minutes. Fine. I'll be at the back door of the factory, and I'll have lunch for you. And he'd come out, and he'd, he'd give him a Coke and, a, and a, a sub sandwich, and they'd sit for 30 minutes, and they'd talk, and they'd pray together, and he'd talk about some things to encourage him and say, listen, brother, we appreciate you. Go get him. Skate hard, score goals. And away you go. Say, listen, God has you as a missionary in this factory. Somebody in there needs, there's someone in there desperate for God in that factory. And let's pray that God will bring that person to you. You don't think that sort of thing happens? It happens all the time. I was just mentioning, uh, I was talking to um, Craig Legro at, uh, at uh, Turkey Hill. He lives in Rockford. And he said, you know, um, we knocked on every door in Rockford and we got one response. Man, that's hard going, isn't it? You say, well, that one soul is worth more. I'm not saying he got saved, but there was just one response, 
one couple that showed any interest at all, a Spanish couple. That was it, in the whole town. Anyway, he was quite discouraged about this, and he was saying, Lord, please open a door for us. And see, I think this is what we need. Um, we need, instead of banging our head against brick wall, that gets a bit wearying after a while, doesn't it? Try this, try that, nothing seems to work. We see a little bit here, a smattering here and there. It just gets so wearying. But Paul said, an open door and effectual has been opened to me. And there are many adversaries. Well, we're, we're happy with the adversaries as long as we get an open door. If we can just walk into something and say, Lord, this, you opened this door. There's no other way to explain it. Well, this is what we want to see. Anyway, he was just quite discouraged. And he said, Lord, open a door for me. He went to work. The next day, and um, his boss told him, <laughs> we've just been granted a big contract by the government. And there's another contract tagged onto it. It's a small one. It's only $11 million. We're not interested in it. And he said, well, sounds like kind of a good-sized contract to me. Um, would it be all right if I wrote up a proposal and offered it to our sister company? Sure, fine. So he went over and uh, met with four men at the sister company and offered this proposal. And the four men looked at him and they said, well, uh, yeah, we'll take it on one condition. What's that? Well, we understand you're a Christian and you do Bible studies. And th the only reason we take the contract is if you'll start a Bible study here in, this, in the business. First meeting, 15 guys showed up, engineers from some company associated with Sunstrand. Like you say, wow, God's at work here, isn't he? And that's what we want to see. And I think we've, we've programmed everything, and I'm, I'm guilty of this. Listen, folks, I am just so convicted about this. Uh, if I was going somewhere and I preached the gospel and some people got saved and they came to me and said, you know, all our relatives need to hear this, would you stick around? <laughs> I'd have to say, I can fit you in early in 2006. I can shoehorn you in. Like, what, where's the will of God in all of this? Where's the leading of the Spirit? The leading of the Spirit has shrunk down to an hour and a half on Sunday morning at the Lord's Supper, or whenever you happen to have it. The, the, the book of Acts is just full of the leading of the Spirit, isn't it? They try to go there. No, sorry. No, don't go there right now. Uh, they say to go into Bithynia. They end up going over to Europe. And the first woman to get saved is from Bithynia over there on business. <laughs> we can't figure these things out, you see. We're not smart enough. We don't see enough of the picture. And so the Lord wants to direct us. I was telling the folks one of the most thrilling things that happened in the last month or so. Um, this brother, Steve Kember, you remember to pray for him. He's blue chip stock, this brother. Um, he, he worked out in Lethbridge, Alberta. There was no assembly there. He went out to Lethbridge, and he um, rented a, a spot in the shopping mall. You know, we, we try to sneak in like thieves, and we get thrown out of the shopping malls. So, Sir, this, you, can't, you can't solicit here in the shopping mall. Well, he says, if you're going to do the Lord's work, it's going to cost money. Does that sound shocking? Yeah, it's going to cost money. To do the Lord's business costs money. He rented a spot in the shopping mall, $500 a month, just for a little stall, 500 a month. And he put up a display of John 3.16 in all the languages of the world. He got one contact out of it. And that contact was a, an ex-Hutterite. Hutterites are people that live in communes like uh, Mennonites, Old Order Mennonites. 
Anyway, his friend said, you know, this is wonderful, this gospel. (laughs) And I left this Hutterite community, and they're all in bondage there, and they never hear the gospel. Would you talk to them? And so he contacted some of his friends, and they came off the commune for for a, a restaurant meal, and Steve gave them the gospel. And one after another, they started to get saved. 130 Hutterites got saved. And there was lots of opposition. When these people left, they left everything. They walked out with a shirt on their backs. That was it. They owned absolutely nothing. Their, their married kids stayed. They said goodbye to them and may never see them again. And they came out with nothing. And they, they've never driven an automobile. They've never opened a bank account. They don't know how to buy groceries. And they had sometimes eight or nine kids. They couldn't rent an apartment for a family of 11. They had to buy them houses. They had to buy them vans, teach them how to drive. And now there's a vibrant assembly there in Lethbridge, Alberta. 130 Hutterite, ex-Hutterite believers. He started getting calls across the border into Saskatchewan. He went over there, and uh, the the uh, elders of the congregation of the of the commune uh, put a court order against him, so he couldn't go on to preach the gospel. And uh, so, not to be easily put off, he went to the local UPS office and mailed his cell phone into one of these interested parties. And um, when he got the news that it had been delivered, he went to a payphone and called his own cell phone and said, here's where to come to a restaurant so we can meet. And so they came off the commune, and uh, he led several there to the Lord. Well, anyway, he's now working down in southern Manitoba. And there was no assembly there in Steinbeck, Steinbeck, Manitoba. There was no assembly there. And so he, uh, he went to work um, in that community, and he now has two large evangelistic Bible studies going, one on either side of the city. And a man came to him one night, a Mennonite fellow, and said, my brother-in-law wants to hear this message you're preaching. Would you take it to him? He said, sure. Here's his address. Well, his address happened to be 1,500 miles away, up on the Yukon Line, a little town called Lacrete. And I don't know how many of us would do this, but Steve went and bought a plane ticket and flew up to Slave Lake and rented a car and drove 200 miles up to this little town of Lacrete, 1,000 people, town of 1,000. Went to the door, knocked at the door. The man came to the door and he said, Hi, I'm Steve Kember. Your brother-in-law said you wanted to hear the gospel. He said, Give me 15 minutes. And he ran out the door and he ran around the, neighbor, the community, came back in 15 minutes, huffing and puffing, and he said, Okay, we're ready. And he took him down to a storefront with 150 people sitting, waiting to hear the gospel. And Steve said, you know, Jabe, the thing is that God knows how to open doors. The question is, are we prepared to wait on him till he opens? See, we go buzzing around. We have no time to go through the door because we're too busy doing all this other stuff that's our idea. And I think we need to get down before the Lord and say, Lord, like our ideas are not working. Could we have your idea? Could you show us what you want us to do here in this town? We think there are lots of people who need to hear about Christ. And we've assumed that the problem is with the unbelievers, but maybe the problem is actually with us. And we're trying to do it in the energy of the flesh, and we want to cooperate with the Spirit now. So if you could arrange that, we will go through the door. But in order to do that, you've got to clear up your time. See, Steve said he was going up there a month ago for tent meetings gospel meetings in that community. The ministers had warned their people, if you follow this man, if you believe this, and you get baptized, that's the unpardonable sin. You'll go to hell. And they started warning the people. You see, well, 
The first time he went up there, um, there I think there were 35 people who stood up and said they got saved. And the next time there were more. And now they've actually had believers baptisms where hundreds of people are coming out to watch these people getting baptized. It's tremendous work. Well, he asked me to go up with him. I couldn't go. I was scheduled. And I'm not sure that this is the way to go about it, you see. We have this little, these circuit things. But is that really the leading of the Spirit of God? So I think we have to do some serious thinking about that. And I think there are some golden opportunities. I think the Lord has them out there. The key is to align ourselves under the Holy Spirit. To wait on the Spirit. To say, Lord, we, we don't want to do it our way. It's, it's not working. We want the Lord's way. So instead of running around looking for new methods, well, it worked for them. Maybe it'll work for us. Well, it doesn't work. God works. And we, want, we don't want what men can do. We want what God can do. And if we want what God can do, well, then we're going to have to go to God for it. And we're going to say, Lord, uh, we're sorry. We've been running around like crazy here and accomplishing next to nothing. Would you do this for us? Would you show us? We're going to clear up our schedule. We're going to make ourselves available. And we want to go through the doors that you open. And he'll do this for us, I think, if we're ready to let him You'll notice that in speaking to these elders, he says in verse 28, but it's good for all of us, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. That's the next thing, isn't it? To take a good hard look at our own souls, at our own spiritual condition. It's so easy to become an expert in telling everybody else how to do it, you know? And to, and to be critical of other people, and they're not in line, they're not doing this, not doing that. Where in reality, if I looked into my own heart, I might find that it's, it looks like an, a, an old garage with some half-filled paint cans and some old bottles and some rubber tires, you know. And you say, what happened? This is supposed to be full of the love of God here. And I've been busy, so busy running around doing this and doing that, I have neglected my own soul. I'm dry, I'm, I'm critical and clinical and official, and, and uh, I become a professional in talking, but not really in doing it and living it and loving the Lord Jesus. And so I, I, I do think that in all the busyness of our day, we, we've got to be ruthless with this. We, we've got, the Lord Jesus is jealous of you. He loves you. He wants to hear your voice. He wants to spend time with you. So I, I feel that this is one of the things, and again, you'll notice the order here. Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. And that we would begin to take heed to all the flock. Like, do you have a little list at home where you pray through the assembly, where you, you think about the Christians in your local church, where you ask yourself, how can I be a servant to that person? Because you know that the, the rating that you have in heaven is directly connected to how many people to whom you are a servant. So in your local assembly, somebody pays the bills, somebody changes the light bulb, somebody takes out the garbage, somebody leads the singing, somebody makes the bulletin, somebody studies to preach the word, somebody teaches Sunday school class, somebody, you know, a lot of jobs that need to be done in a local assembly. And so I think, well, these people are all my servants, you know, the brother who pays the light bill and the brother who uh, does this and the sisters who make the coffee. And these are all servants of ours, aren't they? They serve us. So now the question is, uh, how do I serve them? 
if, if, if in column number one, which describes all the people who serve me, is quite full, but then column number two, the way in which I serve them, looks pretty skimpy. I need to get busy on that, don't I? I need to begin asking myself, how can I be a servant to that person? How can I help them? How can I encourage them? What can I do that will enrich them, that will make them a happier, more wholesome, healthy Christian? What can I do for them? Take heed to yourselves and to all the flocks, the flock. And then he says, uh, there's a double warning here. He talks about wolves and he talks about men of your own selves. Those from without who will be attacking. And listen, if we begin to see God work in a signal way, you can be sure the enemy is just waiting. And there will be two attacks. There will be one from without and one from within. And the one from without is quite obvious. We should be able to recognize a wolf. The one from within is much more subtle. Men of your own selves speaking perverse things. And the word perverse simply means truth with a twist. They've got an agenda. They're using the truth to their own advantage. They're trying to gather disciples, followers after themselves. Now, a heretic is not necessarily someone who teaches false doctrine. It's someone who uses the Bible to their own ends, who tries to gather people to follow after them. And we need to beware of them. We need to watch out. We can expect that if God is going to use us and souls are going to be blessed, that there will be wolves out to get the little lambs. And there will be men who will try to take advantage of the situation to gather a following after themselves. And so we need to watch and remember. Watch and remember. Remember what? Remember how I ceaselessly warned. Sometimes people think, well, he's so negative. He's always warning. Thank God for the people who who have a ministry of warning. We need it. And Paul says, don't forget this, brethren. I warned you night and day. I kept at it. Watch out. Keep low. Keep humble. Keep, keep praying. Keep in the word. You know, just constantly at it. And then he says, I commend you, verse 32, to God and to the word of his grace. I commend you to God. In other words... This isn't your assembly, the Ephesian assembly. It's God's, isn't it? Boy, that's a tremendous relief. Maybe you're in a small assembly and you're struggling along and you feel as if you're holding the whole thing on your shoulders and if you let it go, it's going to go crashing to the ground. You ever feel like that? It's a tremendous relief to realize it's the Lord's work. The Lord's in control. He holds up the whole universe. He doesn't need your help. And when you feel like that, the scripture says, cast your burden on the Lord and he'll sustain you. Not just it, he'll sustain you. He'll hold you up too. He's able to keep us from falling. He's able to hold us up. And so he says, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. The purpose of the work of God is to enrich you, not to impoverish you, not to exhaust you, but to enrich you in his service. He says, after he tells them that he's not interested in material things, in fact, he says, not only did I not covet what people had, I actually worked to pay my own way. 
And um, I think that there should be a place for young people, young couples, to say, what do we want to do in life? Like, do we want to live the American dream? Do we want the nice house in the suburbs with the two cars and the dog and the, the, the stuff? And, you know, is that what we want? Or instead, well, the Lord may give us those things. That's not the big issue. But instead, what our real goal is to be involved in building something that will last forever. The church is the only building that will survive the collapse of the universe. So that's what we want to do. We want to build up the church. And I just thank God for young couples that are prepared to take a lesser job, to take even a demotion in work, and move to an area to be a help in a local assembly. Or if they get the call of the corporation to move up higher, and they say, well, uh, no thanks. We, we have local church responsibilities here. We really feel the Lord wants us to stay here. I mean, I take my hat off to people like that. And I thank God for them. And I know, I know lots of them. I think of the assembly in Tulsa. Do you know that the assembly in Tulsa, which probably today is doing more to encourage the work of God in the heartland of America than any other assembly I know. They were significant in the start of the Little Rock Assembly. They're the ones who put on the Vessels of Honors Conference for young people. They're the ones who have done all sorts of activities, all sorts of work that they're doing there in the heartland of America. That, their building was up for sale. And the assembly was shutting down, and it looked like it was terminal. And, and Brother Frank Moffat, who worked for an oil company, took a three-step demotion to move to Tulsa. It was a dead-end career move in order to rescue that assembly. I think it's tremendous. And, uh, you know, when all is said and done, I, I dare say that the, the world in who's who won't care that Frank Moffat ended up jettisoning his career in the oil business. But I tell you, in heaven, it will be noted. And I, I really long for the day when there will be, like Paul, um, tent makers, like Aquila and Priscilla, who had already moved three or four times, as far as we know, from Jerusalem to Rome and Rome to Corinth. And now Paul says, how would you like to move again? We're going to go to Ephesus, that pagan city. No nice assembly there for my kids. You know, we're going to move to that city and we're going to be the beachhead for the gospel for the whole of Turkey. And it happened. From you sounded out the gospel into all of Asia. And, and so they said, we'll do it. And they moved with Paul, and they used their home as the lighthouse to begin the gospel expansion throughout the whole land of Turkey. I just had a letter from a young man who lives up in Vermont, and he said, we've just finished. I finished my teacher's training. I want to move now to an area where there is a weak, struggling assembly. A weak assembly that wants to grow, that wants to go on for God. And we, I believe the Lord's gifted me in some teaching ministry, but I just want to go and get a job there and be a help. Wow. Isn't that good news? And I think there are others. And, and so I think of places like, well, lots of them around. Lots, I, could, I could name 30 or 40 of them that could really use two or three couples to move into an area and to start a new work. And I tell you, we would, we would help. We'd be glad to help. I know there are 100 Christians at the drop of a hat that would move in and spend a week in gospel work and, and pray for you and encourage you. I know it's true. 
And I, I've had people quite regularly say to me, Jay, we need to do this. We need to do this regularly. This Little Rock thing, we should be doing it every year. We should, uh, the first week of June, everybody ought to know this is it. And we're going to go and inundate some town, and it'll never be the same again. And I'll tell you, it was the high water mark in a lot of Christians' lives. And so pray, pray for us. We're, we're going through some major transitions at the present time, and we're right on the cusp. We're right, there's the turning of the tide. We've got this whole crop of young people. If they don't make a move in the next couple of years, we've lost it. I think we have. I think this is it. This is our golden opportunity. And the world will get its... It's commitments, and pretty soon, well, I'd like to, Jay, but, you know, we got family, we got this, we got that, and, and so it goes. We all know what that can be like. And so I think this is the moment. And I believe that there, there need to be brethren gathering together on a regular basis, opening up the book of Acts, like Powers Court, and saying, Lord, we've been proud, and we thought we had it all straight. The things that we have been shown are true, and we delight in them. But there are some things we've been missing. And we want to see those for ourselves. We want to lay claim to these truths. And we want to be New Testament churches at every level. See, it's not enough to have the mechanics of the local church. We've got to have the dynamic. You can't have a New Testament church without New Testament life. And the life comes through aligning ourselves under the Spirit, bathing ourselves in the Word of God, getting out with the gospel, encouraging, loving each other. I mean, the, the characteristics I see, when I go and see a healthy assembly, they're always the same characteristics. They love to worship. They love to witness. They love each other. And they love the word of God. That's the fourfold passion of a healthy assembly. They love to get into the word, discover it, and live it out. They love to be around each other. They're not in a hurry to get up and leave. They love to be around one another. And they're in each other's homes and in each other's lives. And they have a heart for the lost. They just thrill to hear about a soul being saved. I was in a little meeting uh, a month ago in St. Anne de Mont, a little, little village, French-Canadian village in, uh, in, in the Gaspé of Quebec. And there's a little assembly there, about 15 people, and they've been witnessing to this woman for over a year. And she came to the meeting that night when I was there to tell them she'd been saved. Man, I was, I was second billing way down the list. It didn't matter what I preached that night. If I'd been preaching from the book of Romans on its introductory message, I, it wouldn't have worked. Here was a woman, and she said to me, you know... I thought it would take longer than this. For a year, I battled God. And finally, last night, I got down on my knees in my bedroom and I said, Okay, God, whatever you say in your book, I'll take it as true. She got up and got into bed. She thought, well, it'll probably take a year, you know, to work through the Bible and find out what God has said. Three o'clock in the morning, she couldn't sleep. She tossed and turned for an hour. Finally, she thought, well, I might as well get up and start the project. She opened her Bible, and she said, every page, God was saying, I love you, come to me, love you, I love you, come to me. She said, I, I couldn't stand it anymore. I just got down and say, okay, God, first I'll come to you, then you can teach me your word. And so she, she, was, she was probably the most shocked one in the crowd that she'd actually been saved the first night as soon as she said, I'm willing to do it. Oh, Christian, there are lots of people out there like that. Poor, desperate, lonely souls. They don't know which way to turn. Oh, that God would give us a heart for one another. 
and a heart for Christ, and a heart for his word, and a heart for the lost. If we had that, you can forget all the other preaching on the church. (laughs) I mean, it'll all fall into place. You'll want to know. You'll want to do his word. Nobody will resist the truth. You'll, You'll embrace it happily. You'll say, if he wants it, that's what I want. No questions asked, right? That's the key. So may the Lord encourage us as we, as we look into the future and say, the time is short, the work is great, the labors are few, now's the time. May God help us to rise up and quit you like men. I mean, do the thing. Don't be a girly man. <laughs> Let's get on with it. The Lord's work is a work. It's work. It's a war. It's tough. There are tears. Paul tells us that. Night and day I wept. I mean, the burden of the churches. Yeah, it's tough. But it's great. It's the only thing worth laying your life down for. May the Lord help us. Shall we pray? Father, again, we, we open our hearts to thee. And say, Lord, we're not what we ought to be. We thank God we aren't what we once were. And we want to be what the Lord Jesus wants us to be. And we don't want to fritter away our lives with little token jobs in the church. We want to live lives of significance. We want to lay hold, as the Apostle Paul would say, I want to apprehend that for which I was apprehended of Christ. I want to get a hold of the reason he got a hold of me. He didn't save me so I could be an expert on trivia. He didn't save me so I could be clever. He didn't save me so I could make it in the world. He he saved me to be his local rep. Saved me to be a witness, to be a worshiper, to be a servant. I want to be that. I want to be better at it. I want to grow in it. I want to I want to show by my life that I take the word of God seriously. And so we pray for this gathering of thy people, for the assemblies represented, and for the areas of this region that still are without a New Testament assembly. We pray, O God, for the thrusting out of new laborers. We pray for the raising up of godly elders. We pray for the development of Bible teachers who will spend hours poring over thy word and and have a heart for thy people. We pray for evangelists that will say, Woe is me if I preach not the gospel. We pray, Father, for the raising up of of bright testimonies for thee, godly families, for happy assemblies full of Christians who radiate the joy of Christ. This is thy will, and we pray in thy will and for thy glory. In Jesus' name.